there's a drastic change in the subject matter in 1 Samuel 4, 5, and 6. In fact, we don't hear about Samuel again until chapter 7, which may seem a little strange since Samuel had increasingly become the focus of our attention in the first three chapters. So what's going on here? The drastic change that now needs to be highlighted is the elimination of this old regime of leadership, of Eli's two corrupt sons, and of Eli himself. In other words, God is changing the leadership. None of this should be surprising if we've been paying attention because it's exactly what God said he would do. First through that unknown prophet in chapter 2, verses 27 through 36, and then through Samuel himself in chapter 3, verses 11 through 18. God is preparing his people for the establishment of of a monarchy. And his prophet and priest, Samuel, will be the instrument to bring this change about. Samuel will also judge Israel during this whole process. Now, this change is important because through the descendants of one of these soon-to-be monarchs, God would send his Messiah, Jesus Christ. This process of change is obviously quite a story. With many problems and episodes and lessons and surprises. Probably the most incredible surprise is that the Philistines actually capture the Ark of the Lord. It begins in chapter 4, which has two main sections. First, we see in chapter 4, the second half of verse 1 through verse 11, we see two battle reports concluding with two specific death notices among all the rest of the deaths. And then second in chapter 4, the second section is verses 12 through 22, where we find more news about these catastrophic events. And it also concludes with two more specific death reports. But again, the most shocking news of all this is that the Philistines capture the ark. Today we are going to cover the first section in chapter 4 from the, the middle of verse 1 through verse 11. If you are able, would you please stand as I read 1 Samuel 1b through 11. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. Now Israel went out to battle against the, against the Philistines. They encamped at Ebenezer, and the Philistines encamped at Ephek. And the Philistines drew up in line against Israel, and when the battle spread, Israel was defeated by the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. And when the troops came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why? Has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come upon, among us and save us from the power of the enemies. So the people sent to Shiloh and brought from there the ark of the covenant of the Lord of hosts, who is enthroned on the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. As soon as the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, 
all Israel gave a mighty shout so that the earth resounded. And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, they said, what does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And when they learned that the ark of the Lord had come to the camp, the Philistines were afraid. For they said, a God has come into the camp. And they said, woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us. Who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. Take courage and be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. So the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated. And they fled every man to his home, and there was a very great slaughter. For there fell of Israel 30,000 foot soldiers. And the ark of God was captured, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. may be seated. What a story. Who are the Philistines? Now, up until the last decade or so, it wasn't uncommon to hear the word Philistine in modern conversation. Back when people still knew a little bit about the Old Testament and used various references in conversation. But when it was used that way, and every once in a while you still may hear it, some of you may use it, or you may after you find out what the definition is, maybe you already know. It's a way of referring to someone who is lacking in or hostile to culture in a setting requiring some measure of decorum, someone who obviously isn't respecting the decorum might be described negatively as a Philistine. Now, the interesting thing, however, is that the ancient Philistines were as as advanced or even more advanced than any of their neighbors technologically, militarily, and administratively. And that was the precise reason that they were so dangerous to Israel. One theologian historian writes that they were known as the scourge of God, precisely because they challenged Israel in every area of life and were depicted in Old Testament writings as being, quote, raised up by God to chastise the backslidings of the Lord's people. They were known as the sea people because they lived along the coast. They settled along the Mediterranean coast of southern Canaan and built five city-states, always trying to expand their territory. And you might remember earlier in the period of the actual judges, we've seen that Samuel here is actually the last judge, so it wasn't all that long before this. But Samson was raised up by God, and he dealt a, a serious blow to the Philistines' advance. But we see them in Scripture just keep appearing and appearing and appearing and appearing. Well, what about this battle? This is actually, we can call it a campaign with two parts. We aren't told exactly why this battle started. 
but it looks like it was just a continuation of hostilities because these sea people along the coast had created these city-states, and one of the towns was called Efek and was only about 22 miles as the crow flies due west of Shiloh, where the tabernacle was. In other words, they weren't just along the coast anymore. They were settling in the hill country. And we read what? That Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. So all of a sudden, there's this confidence and plans to do something about these Philistines again. So this would be like an army marching from Amarillo out just past Wilderado to take on those invaders from Vega in a place called Ebenezer. Except there's no sea out there. But we need to have just some kind of reference about how close everything is in Israel. Verse 2 tells us all we need to know about how it went. And it was not good for the Israelites. It was a decisive defeat with 4,000 men killed. So the question that the elders ask as these defeated soldiers who lived through it came back to their camp. It's very interesting, is it not? The question is, why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Technically, this is the right question. But who is it directed to? The elders of Israel did not really ask God this question. They asked each other this question. And they answered their own question way too quickly. This was a situation in which they should have been and needed to be really bothered by what had happened, so much so that they would evaluate their own condition before the Lord. You see, there's a reason why that theologian called the Philistines the scourge of God, besides the fact that they were always a menacing threat to Israel. The other reason is because God did use them to get his people's attention when they had forgotten about him. And that's essentially what is happening here. But they didn't ask God this question. They needed to evaluate their own condition before the Lord and then humbly come before him and confess and repent of their gross sin as his people. They had forgotten him again. We've seen that already in the first three chapters. The elders knew that God was sovereign over all affairs. You can tell by what they're asking. And as his specifically chosen people, they knew that God used such events to convey his favor or his disfavor of their spiritual condition as his covenant people. This event is really just a continuation of the pattern displayed by the people of Israel all through the book of Judges. I know this was a long time ago, but wasn't it just two summers ago when Blake Johnson was here and we were on sabbatical and he preached through the book of Judges? Do you remember the pattern all through the book of Judges over and over and over again? And it's not unique just to the people of Israel. First, the people forgot God and rebelled. God let them be oppressed by a neighbor, usually, who was threatening to conquer them or had or did for a little while or just was a constant menace 
The people got the message finally and repented. And then God raised up a judge, a deliverer, who would have some military defeat usually in some form or fashion. And then everything was all right for a while until what? The whole cycle starts over again. They forgot about how great their God is. They rebelled in their hearts, and it happened over and over and over again. And this is what we're seeing here is a continuation of that trend. Once again, they forgot or ignored. And they also forgot several passages of Scripture that they should have learned and been passing down to their children and great-grandchildren, etc., 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 in Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28 and other places as well. But these two places have passages that addressed specifically Israel's problem as God's covenant, um, covenant people. In Deuteronomy 28, for instance, in verse 15 and 25, we read this. God says, But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God, or be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. The Lord will cause you to be defeated before your enemies. This shouldn't have been a big surprise, but it didn't get their attention. Yet they did not really consider asking the Lord why or searching the scriptures for why. Their spiritual condition was so dark and blinded that they had no idea why the Lord had defeated them today before the Philistines. And you know what? What else did they miss? They didn't even go consult with Samuel, who we just read at the end of chapter 3 in the first part of verse 1 in chapter 4. He spoke, and all Israel knew that God was speaking through him as his prophet. They didn't bother. So what is their solution? They wouldn't go to God and ask him? They were just talking amongst themselves. What do we need to do? What do we need to do? This is horrible. They didn't go consult Samuel. They didn't look at the scriptures that they had. Verse 3, last part. Let us bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. Better not laugh at this. Let's see why. Instead of seeking the Lord and his perspective and remembering the curses and blessings of the law associated with how they were obeying the Lord or going to Samuel to humbly ask him about these issues, they took matters into their own hands they acted impetuously and arrogantly, thinking they'd figured out what went wrong, and now they knew how to fix it. This is standard operating procedure for most of us, too, most of the time. It's probably our first reaction. And it will be until or unless we've learned this lesson, very hard lesson, over and over and over again. Well, what was the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord? It was the sacred, gold-covered, portable box, about three and three-quarters feet long and two and a half feet wide, or two and a quarter feet wide and two and a quarter feet 
high. Not that big. It's a little smaller than this. The Ark of the Covenant was, unless it was being uh, carried on the march in the wilderness, which they had records of as they traveled to the promised land, it once the tabernacle was in some place, it was there, sat behind the thick veil in Israel's worship center, the tabernacle in the area called the Most Holy Place. The Ark of the Covenant did suggest several things about God that the elders desperately wanted to have in battle. What? This should be easy for all of us. Well, it suggested God's rulership and his power and his presence. It was called the, what do we read in verse 4? The Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of hosts who is enthroned on the cherubim. The cherubim were representations attached to the lid of the ark of these magnificent winged angels with their wings spread out over the top on each end. If God is thought of as being enthroned there, and can you see him thinking that he was enthroned there and sort of contained there? which is blasphemous even to to really be thinking that way, but that's an easy leap for any of us to make. It's not a stretch then to think that his symbolic presence there would guarantee, what? Success and victory. It also suggested God's revelation. Why? What was in it? The ark contained copies of the Ten Commandments. And God had also promised to speak there to Moses with additional direction for Israel as they were in the wilderness. He was in the middle of the camp most of the time until they got so ridiculously rebellious that it was moved outside. What else? It was suggesting God's reconciliation. Why? Because the lid of the ark was known as the mercy seat. And it was where the blood sacrifice on the Day of Atonement was, the blood was sprinkled on the top of this ark. Gold. And it was also a picture of God's leading, which in their history did include having the ark with them in battle. And we see that numerous places, but Numbers 10, 35 is one place. But in battle, especially in in the Exodus as they left Egypt, and as a sign of promised victory when they crossed the river Jordan into the promised land finally, and one more really famous place, where the walls fell down. Jericho. So all those pictures are there. It, it did suggest rulership and power and God's presence and his revelation and his reconciliation and his leading. But how easy would it be to believe that it was the ark that brought miraculous power rather than God himself, who won Israel's victories. See, that's not much of a leap for most people. Especially in the time when people we know were far from the Lord. Could it be thought of then, it's been called here as a divine power box, 
Movies have depicted it in similar ways using similar terms. So their very wrong solution is about ready to cost them dearly. Dale Ralph Davis explains that the elders were thinking this way. Their assumption was, if we bring the ark to battle, God will be forced to deliver us to protect his honor. Should something happen to the ark, it would make God the loser. And naturally, he wouldn't allow that to happen. He'll have to save us now. His honor is at stake. So they think that they now have God under pressure because they have the sign of his presence. Thus, he wouldn't dare allow them to lose. To have God's furniture is to have God's power. The ark is their religious ace in the hole. Now, was this a unique experience for Israel? By no means. Much later, when God raised up hostile pagan nations to not only defeat, but destroy most of the North Kingdom and destroy Jerusalem, the people were operating under the same assumption. God would never allow Jerusalem to fall. It's where the temple is. Same exact thinking. And it was so wrong. So the people sent to Shiloh and brought from there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, we read in our text, the covenant of the Lord of hosts who is enthroned on the cherubim. Now, before we get too carried away about thinking that how could they think this, let's humble ourselves for a little bit and think about how we're tempted to do exactly the same thing. And I'm not talking about little bobblehead Jesuses on the dashboard of your car. I haven't seen any of y'all with that sacrilege going on. It's a little deeper than that, isn't it? We can, we can understand this if we ask a question that's really underlying it all. And what is that? We must start by asking, what's the purpose of our faith? And the Bible's clear about this. One way to sum it up is just to mention the three biggest things that come to your mind to the purpose of our faith is to bring us to a saving knowledge of God. John 17, 3 says, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom you've sent. Secondly, the purpose of our faith is that we might grow in holiness once we've come to know him. For example, in Ephesians 4, Paul writes in verses 20 through 24, But that's not the way you learn Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Almost all of the letters in the New Testament deal specifically with this growing in holiness purpose of our faith. There is no such thing as a legitimate excuse for a Christian to live in neutral or in cruise control. We are to grow in holiness. And thirdly, the purpose of our faith is that we might serve the Lord. Serve the Lord. 1 Peter 2 9, Peter writes, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, 
a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So the purpose of our faith, the priorities in this life for a true believer are what? Knowing God, growing in holiness, and serving Him. Now, with that in mind, let's think about how we're tempted to do what these Israelites did. And to do that, how can these purposes or the priorities that we see are, are the main ones for every believer, how, how can they be so completely ignored by so many professing Christians today? You know, the answer to this is really pretty simple. Simply by cultivating motivations especially in a popular-driven society that are really mostly selfish. Some examples. A businessman who sees little value in Christianity until he's told that God has the power to keep his company afloat. All of a sudden, he's really interested. A sick person is told to seek God because he has the power to heal. A student facing exams turns to God in prayer because God can enable them to have a good score. A politician takes a sudden interest in God when a sufficient number of constituents apply the pressure to do so or they won't vote for him. A young person is told they need God so they can experience the ultimate spiritual high and victory in every area of life. Now, obviously, God can do far more than meet our immediate needs. But do you see what is motivating the desire to check God out or say that you believe in him in those instances? Every one of them is motivated by a selfish desire that God may grant. He may work in those situations if he knows it will bring his name before their face as he changes them. But you know what? Such people with those kind of motivations really have very little genuine interest in faith or Christianity. Would you agree? Can we get sucked into that? Yes. It's really easy. In all these cases, these actions mostly consist of human attempts to do what? Harness God's power. Kind of like that magician in Acts that wanted to know how all those miracles were happening so he could cash in on it. Dale Dale Ralph Davis calls this rabbit foot theology. That's hard to forget. Their concern, you see, is not to seek God, but to control Him. Not to submit to God, but to use Him. And sometimes that line is blurry, and we must guard our hearts and pray for God's grace and mercy so we don't get into that situation more than we're already prone to do anyway. It can be very deceitful. It can be very subtle. In our day, I don't think it's, it's subtle anymore. It's, it's used as a marketing ploy to get people there for a bait-and-switch operation. And we need to realize that.
This is so important. There is a sure sign, guaranteed sure sign of someone who practices this kind of power religion or rabbit foot theology. You know what it is? It's an emphasis. It's, it's an extreme obsession with religious and spiritual techniques. Why? Because the point of the heart of this person is to get God to serve us rather than to serve him. So that's why there's techniques. That's all you read in so many books. The five secrets to this, do this and this will happen, get rid of this and this, go on this plan and this will happen, blow this thing and God will answer your prayer, say many as many prayers as you want. There are a million ways that this is, this is carried out. But that's the sure sign of someone who is, doesn't understand what a relationship with Christ really is. Someone who operates, just give me a technique, show me what to do. Did it work? Did it work for you? Then I'll try it. Now we need to jump into the second part of this campaign. Middle of verse 4. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. And as soon as the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout, so that the earth resounded. And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, they said, What does this great shout in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And when they learned that the Ark of the Lord had come into the camp, the Philistines were afraid, and rightly so, can we say? For they said, A God has come into the camp. And they said, Woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us. Who can deliver us from the mighty power of these gods? They are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. Take courage and be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as they've been to you. Be men and fight. Now let's look at this because this has some great insight for each of us. Here in verse 4, last half, we have a vivid picture of of everything that was just wrong about the whole state of this war and the people's hearts. First is this contrast. Hophni and Phinehas were there with the covenant, the Ark of the Covenant of God. And we should just go, no, 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 no. The sign of God's presence, the Ark, together with the men who were most offensive to God, the Ten Commandments inches away in the box, in the ark, away from the two priests who brazenly and publicly broke them, and everyone in Israel knew about it. But the point is that these two guys just didn't care at all about God or their sin. And what's even worse is that nobody else cared. They were the ones escorting the ark. That's one thing that's really wrong. What's the other thing that's really wrong? This mighty shout. What was that a sign of? False confidence. Superficial faith. We've got the magic potion, the ace in the hole, the secret weapon. We've got it now. They don't have a chance. It was so loud that the Philistine camp heard it, and they were over two miles away. And it affected them. Did it not? It was so loud. How did it affect them? First, the Philistines, we see, had great fear. Great fear. But then it led to something else that probably wasn't expected. What's that? The last part. It then led to a resolve where these guys were steeled and it made them even tougher 
and more resolved to win than they ever had been before. And we see that in verse 9. Now, I thought this week, you know, this would be a great time to find a, a quote from Richard Phillips, who was the Army tank commander who ended up teaching at West Point, who ended up becoming a pastor himself, and see how he's looking at this. Because we've seen that when it comes to battle and these kind of strategies and stuff, the guy just has insight beyond any of us. And what does he say? Quote, Unless our power in cultural and spiritual warfare is truly the might of God, directed by his word, motivated by his grace, and animated by his spirit, then the world's power is easily able to overcome our religious pretensions. He hit it. And if we really are entering a period of our history where Christianity will be under attack in ways that we don't expect, then there's a whole lot of professing Christians that are getting ready to have to face the music. Because if they're depending on relics or techniques or whatever to think they can stand before this onslaught, it will not work. What is the surprising end result? Actually, there's several here in verses 10 and 11. So the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated, and they fled every man to his home, and there was a very great, what, victory? Defeat? How does it describe slaughter for 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell and the ark of the God was captured and the two sons of Eli Hophni and Phinehas died. Another decisive defeat. 30,000 men died. The Philistines captured the Ark of the Lord. Hophni and Phinehas died. So what can we say really happened What's going on here in the big picture? What is God doing? The rule of Eli's wicked sons has just ended. And we're going to see in the second half of chapter 4 that Eli dies. Not when he heard about his sons, but when he heard that the ark had been captured. Not only that, but we know from other texts and the historical references that the Philistines ended up overrunning and destroying Shiloh. In Psalm 78, verse 60, is a lament about this. He forsook his dwelling at Shiloh, the tent where he dwelt among mankind. Lots of illusions, lots of tragedy. In other words, what God said 
would happen is now happening to these people. Now, let's consider and ponder some observations about this. Israel planned the bringing of the ark as the key to victory, but God used it to carry out his purpose to do what? Put Hophni and Phinehas to death. He had pronounced judgment on them in two parallel prophecies. And on the day that seemed like would be dishonoring to God, why? Why would it seem to be dishonoring to God? Because the Philistines were going, man, their God's weak. He must have left them. Sure didn't happen like when they left Egypt. Because the whole ancient world knew the story. See, God's bigger than what people think about him and his plan and his work. Because on the same day that God seemed to be completely dishonored, God was in fact beginning to protect his honor and to restore it. How? Well, God may be despised by the Philistines for a while until, for instance, David uh, deals with their giant. God does this. Just a little reminder. That that one wasn't a little reminder. That was a huge reminder. You you may think you're messing with me, but you're not. But he will no longer be despised in Shiloh. Why? Because the false worship and the despicable sin in the presence of what's supposed to represent him, the whole blaspheming the sacrificial system by dishonoring God, not caring whether you obey when you just slaughtered all these animals, to have a picture of the coming Messiah who would die for him, all that is suspended for a while. And in the middle of all this, God is clearly but quietly fulfilling the prophecy that he'd spoken. You think people don't or didn't remember that? Whoa! This is exactly what God said he would do. Now, what even gets more interesting is this. If, in fact... Although fulfilling this prophecy, he acts in judgment, did he? Yes. He nevertheless acts in grace. For in his judgment, what's he doing? Removing false shepherds who caused his people to go astray. Did you hear that? In the middle of his judgment, he is purifying his people. God is both judging and pouring out his grace to purify them. And he does this often. This is a lot to think about. Some of the big things to think about. God does not exist for us. We exist for him. So we should pray that God would make us aware as we think about other biblical examples of attempts to put pressure on God to get him to do what we want him to do for our own selfish purposes. And that leads us to ask, well, what's the difference between basing a prayer on God's promises and then trying to force his hand? That one takes some more thought, does it not? But in that process of thinking about this, what happens? We recognize that we must humble ourselves before the one that we're asking and praying to. And he, as he changes our heart to be humbled, we see that we will be okay with whatever his will is. But he may give us stronger impressions to go this way or to go this way. But the process is to humble us as we do it.
where he is God and we're the supplicant. Can you think of examples in your own experience or other people's experience where God has acted both in judgment and grace at the very same time? Something you recognize as, oh man, those consequences weren't just normal. That was, well, that was God's hand. And at the same time you're going, but look what grew out of that. Look what he did through that. That's how great our God is. That's who we are called to serve. Let's pray. Father, we again, we thank you for your word. We thank you for these texts in the Old Testament that illustrate so vividly and clearly the, our own proneness to wander from you and what our hearts really do and how we must see you for who you are we must see our great need we must see your incredible sacrifice of sending your own son because of your love for us your plan to redeem uh, your plan to bring glory and honor to yourself and we pray that we would think more as we come to know you and know who you are and what your character is and how you have operated in the book that you've chosen to reveal to us uh, your characteristics, that we would learn great lessons and see, be more aware and see more uh, your hand in all the circumstances in our lives. Thank you that we can honor and praise you and trust you that you are completely faithful and that as we continue this text where we see the second half of how you deal with Eli and others, that again you would drive home in our hearts your greatness and glory, your faithfulness and your love and your commitment to complete what you started in your people. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Would you stand for our benediction? The grace, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. You're dismissed.